The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. up our I am series and we have been talking about the seven I am statements of Jesus, Jesus according to Jesus. And these I am statements are so much more than just quotes by some historical figure. These I am statements are living, they are active, they are the words of Jesus that are still speaking today and they are inviting us to act. They are inviting us to believe these things that Jesus said. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. How many of you have enjoyed this I Am series? It's been so good. So we've gone through all of these seven I Am statements. So how are we wrapping up the series? There's no more I Am statements. Well, you're right, but there are some I Am Not statements. And that's what we're going to look at today as we wrap this up. The I Am Not statements of Jesus that are found in John chapter 8. So turn to John chapter 8. We're going to look at these three statements. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you all right now. The first one that Jesus said is, I am not alone. We're gonna see that in verse 16. The second one is, I am not of this world. We'll see that in verse 23. And then the third one is, I am not seeking my own glory. We'll see that in verse 50. Now I want you to know that these I am not statements are just as revealing as the I am statements. They're just as living, they're just as active, and they are inviting you to believe and act today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for what you're doing in this church. I thank you for your presence that is here, that your presence is here, that the King is here, that you want to meet with us, that you want to speak to us, you want to help us, you want to encourage us, God. I thank you, Lord, that, that your word is alive and active, God. And I pray for fertile hearts today so that as the seed of the word of God is thrown out, the incorruptible seed of the word of God, as it is sown out, that it finds a good landing place in our hearts so that it can produce fruit, Lord. I pray that tomorrow, as the enemy comes and tries to snatch it away or as distraction comes in and tries to crowd it out so that it can't do what you want it to do, Lord, we speak against those things in Jesus' name. We say, give us fertile hearts, Lord, as we listen to the word of God, as we sit under the word of God today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, our first one, let's jump right in. Are you guys ready? All right, the first one is, I am not alone. I am not alone. I think when we think about Jesus saying these words, I am not alone, we probably assume he's just referring to the presence of God being with him. Like as he walked the earth, that his father was with him, that he, could, he experienced the tangible presence of his heavenly father. And we know this to be true. We know that he did experience the presence of God because when he felt an absence of that presence, when he was hanging on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt an absence of the presence. So we know that he was with God in that sense, the presence of God. He wasn't alone in the sense that God was with him. But I wanna look a little bit closer at this I am not statement because Jesus is referring more to, uh, more than he is referring to more than just the presence of God. 
And we'll see that as we read in John 8 through 13, 13 through 18. Uh, we'll, we'll get the full picture, the full weight, the full context of this I am not alone statement. But before we do that, I want to give you just like a little refresher, kind of catch you up to speed on what has been happening before we get to this I am not statement. Jesus would have just gotten up, like wiped the dust off of his hands because he had been riding in the dirt next to the woman that was caught in the act of adultery that the Pharisees brought to him. The Pharisees would have just been baffled by Jesus because he said, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Jesus did not throw a stone even though he was the only one without sin. Jesus had just said to this lady, go and sin no more. And then we find Jesus in the temple and he is saying the second I am statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So we have one of the greatest displays, the greatest acts of mercy recorded in scripture, followed by this amazing, I am the light of the world statement. Jesus saying, whoever follows me can have God. And then we get to verse 13. This is where we pick up. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, Jesus, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. So he's just done these things and they're saying, you're appearing as your own witness your testimony is not valid. Anyone with any understanding of how a courtroom works, even if you're like me, and your, your, your understanding of a courtroom and how it works is based on watching courtroom dramas on Netflix, even if you have little experience, no experience with a courtroom, we all understand that a witness who is testifying on their own behalf, that their own testimony is not going to go very far with the jury if they are their only witness. Like they could get up and they could talk about how wonderful they are, how great their character is. They can talk about how they have been an upstanding citizen all of their years. They can say, I was nowhere near the scene of that crime. But if they can't pull one witness, one character witness, somebody to testify on their behalf, an alibi to say that they weren't there that time, that night, uh, then their, their testimony is not going to be considered valid, right? So the Pharisees are trying to pull Jesus into their own little courtroom drama. They are trying to intimidate the star witness. They're trying to intimidate Jesus. They say these claims that you make about yourself, like being the light of the world, and these decisions that you make, like not stoning that sinner, you don't have anyone to speak on your behalf to prove that you are who you say you are, to prove that your judgments and your decisions are right. So look at how Jesus responds to this. He answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. Here it is, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. So Jesus is saying, listen, you guys don't get it. You don't know who I am. 
I could technically, I don't need to, to bring a witness before you. I could testify on my own behalf and it would be valid because I have a view of eternity that you do not have. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But to satisfy these narrow-minded men, to accommodate these men, he lets them know he actually does have a witness. He does have an alibi. He does have somebody who can testify, testify on his behalf. And this witness can back up every statement, everything that Jesus has ever said. They can back it up that it is the whole truth. It is nothing but the truth. He does have a witness. He does have an alibi who can testify that every judgment he has made, every decision he has made is right, is fact, is truth. I know you've heard somebody say before, like, I promise I didn't do it. God is my witness. Like, Jesus could actually say this. God was his witness. He was not alone. He was standing with the Father who sent him. So you see how this is more than just not being alone, like the presence was with him. He was not alone in his words and in his actions. If you're taking notes, write this down. The testimony and decisions of Jesus were valid because he was not alone. God was his witness. And we are not alone today either. Gabriella's is putting in a new pizza kitchen down the hall. So if you hear drilling and whirring and first service, I was like, I'm pretty sure my ear is ringing. Why is my ear ringing? What's happening? It's the construction going on. So just tune it out, okay? All right. So I want you to think about this. Jesus, we just talked about how that scene where he's riding in the dirt. Jesus was not alone when he wrote in the dirt. He was standing with God. Jesus was not alone when he did not cast the first stone. He was standing with God. Jesus was not alone when he called adultery sin. He was standing with God. Jesus was not alone when he said, I am the light of the world. I am the way and the only way he was standing with God. So God the Father we see was validating Jesus. He was testifying. He was backing up everything that Jesus did, every statement that he made. He witnessed the whole of Jesus' life, his earthly ministry, and he backed up, approved, and validated all of it. Jesus was not alone. The Father was standing with him. So Jesus says, you guys need two witnesses to prove that anything is true and right. Well, here you go. I'm witness number one, and my Father is witness number two. How do you like them apples? He's like, hey, I got God's number. How do you like them? No, he's my witness, God as my witness. So Jesus is not alone. He stands with the Father. Last week, Pastor Jackson talked about how sometimes we have this idea of good cop, bad cop that we play in our minds, like Jesus being the good cop and God being the bad cop, and they kind of balance each other out. They help balance each other out, like a, a really strict parent and a really lenient parent, but that is not the case. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus stands with God and God stands with Jesus. So we can be sure that the way that Jesus responded to the woman caught in the act of adultery is the exact same way that God would have responded to the woman caught in the act of adultery. They stand together. They both are full of mercy. They both are full of truth. Now, I believe that understanding that Jesus was not alone, that he was not some lone ranger just out there doing whatever he wanted to do, saying whatever he wanted to say, making any decisions that he wanted to make is important for us to grasp because sometimes we are lone rangers. Oftentimes we are 
lone rangers. We're just kind of doing our own thing. We are not stopping to think, is Jesus standing with me? Is the Father who sent him standing with me or am I alone in what I'm about to say, do, post, whatever? And you may be thinking, that's not me. Like, I am not a lone ranger, Sarah. I've always got two to three witnesses, just like scripture says, that can back me up on the issues that are important to me. Now, that's great as long as you and all two or all three of your witnesses can all say, we're not alone in this. We stand with Jesus and the Father who sent him. I think sometimes we think that as long as there's a couple of other people that are thinking the same way that we're thinking, that we're not alone, that there's credibility, that it's right, that it's valid. What we're about to do, say, pass judgment, decide, it's got to be right because there's people that agree with us, that think like us. We think, oh, I can post this because there's whole news networks backing me up. I'm not alone in this post. The news network stands with me. Or we think, I'm not alone in this. I can post this thing because tens of my followers on Instagram are going to heart it. I'm not alone. I'm with 10 followers on Instagram. Or I can judge this person based on a conversation I had with three of my coworkers at work. We all are thinking the same thing about this lady. I'm not alone. I stand with Deb and I stand with Karen and I stand with Barbara. I'm not alone. I can cut this person off because my mom did it and my dad did it and my brother did it. I'm not alone. I'm standing with my family. If all my family did it, it must be right. Or I can get up and ball out this referee at my kid's game because all the other parents are doing it. I'm not alone. I'm standing with these other outraged parents. We think that we're not alone because other people agree with our thoughts or agree with our judgments, or agree with our post or our statements. Like, you could call those people to witness for you, and they could prove that your thought was right. But if you cannot bring Jesus to testify for you and say, yeah, what she's doing is right, what she's posting is right, I agree with that judgment call, then you are alone. You may feel like you're not because you have a crowd with you, but you are alone. If you cannot say, I'm not alone because I stand with Jesus and the father who sent him. I think sometimes we think, uh, we hear that verse, I read it this week in our, uh, it was part of our reading in our Being Transformed journal. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So Christians think if there's just a group of us that Jesus is there and he's with us, but that's not what he said. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, That means in his nature, in his character, a representative of who he is, what he loves, what he stands for. If you're just gathered saying, oh, we're all here and we all know the name of Jesus, but we're all acting like the devil, he's not there with you. Where two or three are gathered in his name, in his character, in who he is, an ambassador of him, then he is there with you. So how can we be sure that we're not alone? but standing with Jesus and his father. One, we have to know what Jesus and the father stand for. Two, we have to seek to understand the nature of Jesus. Because sometimes we can know what he stands for, but we don't understand his nature, his gentleness, his love, his compassion, his understanding. We have to know his nature. He was full of mercy and full of truth. And in order to know what he stands for, and in order to understand his nature, we have to abide in his word 
and abide in him. Like Pastor Jackson talked about last week, apart from him, we can do nothing. We have to abide in him and his word. And this is what happens. As I'm abiding in his word, I begin to know what he stands for, and I begin to understand his nature and his character. So I know Jesus, and I know that he is not standing with me in my unforgiveness. As I walk in unforgiveness, he's not backing me up in that. I am alone in my unforgiveness. If I know Jesus, I know he's not standing with me when I talk about my grievances with that sister to everyone except that sister. I am alone in my gossip. If I know Jesus, I know that he is not standing with me when I hurl stones of judgment. I am alone in my attack. Now, if I know Jesus, I know he is standing with me when I lay my hands on someone who is sick to pray for their healing. I know he is with me. I am not alone in my prayer. I am not alone in the throne room. Jesus is standing with me and the father who sent me sent him. If I know Jesus, I know he is standing with me when I extend mercy. He is there with me. I am not alone in giving something that seems undeserved. If I know Jesus, I know he is with me when I give and when I serve without the expectation that I'm going to receive something in return. I am not alone in my serving. Jesus was so bold and so loving, and I think we can all agree that he made the biggest difference that anyone has ever made. He made the ultimate difference, and it was because he was not alone. He was standing with the Father who sent him. And we live in a day and age where we want to make a difference. We want to see prayers answered. We want to see God's kingdom come. We want to see our country turn back to God. We want to make a difference, but we're trying to do it on our own. If we really want to make a difference, then before we act, before we decide, before we judge, before we testify, we need to be able to say, I am not alone. I stand with Jesus and the Father who sent him. That's the only way you're going to make a lasting difference. I believe that the Holy Spirit is calling people out of areas of aloneness. You've been deceived. You, you, you thought that you, you weren't alone because these people, these Christians, these Christ followers have been standing with you in certain areas, but they're not standing with Jesus. He doesn't back up that behavior, that action, that stance. And so he's calling you out of areas of aloneness. And he's saying, here, don't, you, you're not, I don't, you're standing opposed to me. You are not standing with me. He says, find out what I stand for. Find out my nature and my character. Advance the kingdom of God. Do not hinder it. The next thing that Jesus said was, I am not of this world. The next I am not statement. I am not of this world. So he just has revealed he's standing with his father. And the Pharisees tried to kind of take him down a notch. They're trying to insult him. They're trying to burn him. They're trying to hurt his feelings. And so they ask him this question, where is your father? Oh, you stand with your father? Where is he? They're referring to Joseph. David Guzik explains their ill intent with this question. So nasty. To, questions, or to question a man's paternity is a definite slur on his legitimacy trying to say, you're not legit. Where's your father? You stand with your father? We don't even know where your father is. It's a slur on his legitimacy. Jesus answers them. You do not know me or my father. 
I'm going away, you won't be able to follow me because where I go, you cannot come. Now that these men, he's revealing that they're going to hell and they are so deceived. They are so blind. They are so hard-hearted that when he says, where I am going, you cannot go, they assume, oh, he's going to hell because they were so convinced that they were going to heaven. These are the men that Jesus is dealing with in this chapter. Now look at verse 23. Here comes the next I am not statement. But Jesus continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He's trying to show them that they are totally upside down in their thinking. He is trying to show them that we are complete opposites. You are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So what is Jesus saying when he says that these guys are from below? He's saying they're of the earth, that they are influenced by the earth, by earthly, sensual, and corrupt passions, that they are governed by the lowest and vilest feelings and views that are in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. The views that they have get their origin in hell or in the earth. He takes it further and says they're children of the devil. It says, you breathe his spirit and you speak his native language of lie and you do his lust. He's saying they're conformed to the patterns of the earth, to the rhythms, to the customs of the earth. He's saying you're under the influence of the God of this world, which is Satan. They were men of worldly spirits. They minded earthly things and they had their portion in the earth, in the world. So here they are trying to slur the legitimacy of Jesus and instead, he's like, how about we talk about your father and where you come from? You're from below. You're of this world. Jesus says a lot with just a few words. He's punchy. Then he says, now let me tell you about my heritage. He says, I am from above. I am not of this world. And this would not be the last time that Jesus said this I am not statement. I am not of the world. He said it again when he's praying for the disciples, the disciples that were right there and the disciples that are in this room today. He prayed this prayer for us. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So not only does Jesus say that he is not of the world, he says that we those who have decided to follow Jesus, to embrace him, those who have been born again, regenerated, those who can say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, those who are following after Jesus, we must identify with this I am not statement. Jesus was not of the world and me and you, you and I, we are not of this world. We're not to be governed by the ways of this world, the lowest and vilest views and feelings that are in direct opposition to God's kingdom. We have to uh, resist the world's patterns. We can't be conformed to its patterns. We can't be swept up in the currents of chaos and confusion that are in this world. Yet, we do live here, right? We all live here, just like Jesus lived here when he made this I am not statement. And Jesus prayed that we would stay here in this world, that we wouldn't be taken out of the world. So we have some believers that mix in with the world 
and they become conformed to the pattern of the world. And then we have some believers who disassociate from the world and they separate themselves from the world and they render themselves useless in the mission to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus prayed that we wouldn't be taken out of the world. Why? Because we have a job to do here. I think we all know the phrase, we are in the world, but not of the world. Have you heard that phrase before? Okay, I don't necessarily like the phrase because it's just too passive for me. Like we're in the world, it just sounds like we're in it waiting to get out of it. Like we're just sitting around in the world, like you sit in the, like you soak in the bathtub, right? No, I have been sent into the world, I am not of the world. That's how we need to think about the world. I've been sent into it, but I'm not of it. This is how Jesus approached it. He was not just in the world, waiting around, waiting to get out of it. He wasn't just sitting around, waiting till the time was right when he would be crucified and resurrected. He understood he was on mission, that he was sent into the world. So we see him not hiding himself away from the world. He conversed with sinners. He ate with them. He brought them to himself. He called them to repentance. He was sent into the world, yet he was not of it. He did not act as sinners acted. He was separate from them. He didn't do as they did. He did not pursue the pleasures, the honors, and riches of this world. He understood he was sent into it, but not of it. The same is true for you, church. You are not of this world, but you have been sent into it. Now, I wanna shift your focus a little bit today because if you've been at New Song for any length of time, you understand this principle. Like Josh talked about it a couple of weeks ago uh, that we're not of this world. Mo talked about it at Love His that we're sojourners here, that this is not our home. We're familiar with this concept, but the Lord showed me this week, like it was so strong, this impression that he put on my heart uh, uh, of somehow, uh, of sometimes how we can think about this. He said, sometimes we're so focused on the world that we are not of that we lose sight of the world that we are of. Write it down. Think on this more this week. Sometimes we are so focused on the world that we are not of that we lose sight of the world that we are of. Okay, so if we're not of this world, what world are we of? This is what Pilate was trying to figure out when Jesus stood before him on trial. He knew that this man was unlike any man that had ever stood before him ever. He had never been in the presence of a man like this and he was perplexed. He is trying to figure out what world Jesus is from. He's like, what kingdom are you from? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. So God's kingdom is not of this world. What kingdom are we of? What world are we of? We are of God's kingdom. This is the world that we are of. So are you interacting with that world? Are you living from that world? Are you thriving in the world that you are of? Are you being, I know you're not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but are you being transformed by the patterns of the world that you are of? Are you aware of the world that you are of? I know that you know what this world stands for, what your Republican or your Democrat party stands for, what the influences that you follow on social media stand for that are all in this world. But do you know what God stands for? Do you know what the kingdom of God stands for? Do you know what the world that you are of is all about? 
When we're aware of the unseen realm that God says is real, we're aware that heaven is here, that it is now, that God is here, that he has spiritual agents here, here and now that are constantly available to us. When we're born again, we are born from above. And we can say with Jesus, I'm from above. I'm not of this world. I think, church, that we have lost the meaning of what it means to be born again. We don't grasp it fully. What miracle takes place? Like, do we really get it? Or is it just like, I raised my hand and I'm going to heaven someday? No, we've been born again. In the New Testament language, it means to be born again means to be interactively joined with a dynamic unseen system, an unseen world, an unseen kingdom of divine reality. Not fantasy, not mysticism, not imagination, but divine reality in the midst of which all humanity moves about whether it knows it or not. When you are born again, you are joined. You are joined with this dynamic unseen world. This is the world that you are of, of divine reality, where God is king, where he rules and where he reigns. This is the kingdom among us. This is the kingdom at hand. This is the world that we are of. I think sometimes we tend to think if we ever think about God's kingdom, about heaven, that it is like um, the, the place that Fifel sang about in American Tale, that it is somewhere out there beneath the, ma- the pale moonlight. Someone's thinking of me, maybe under the moon, but it's not somewhere out there. It is here. It is right now. It is at hand. Jacob in Genesis 28, he's on the run. He's asleep in a ditch. He has a rock for a pillow. He wakes up and he sees this passageway from earth to heaven and angels coming and going. He wakes up and says, God is here. I have found the entrance into heaven. He says, I've stumbled into God's home on the earth. In the New Testament, the disciples witnessed Jesus interacting with this unseen realm time and time again, the transfiguration, the resurrection. It says that the Holy Spirit came like a sound, a rushing mighty sound, a rushing mighty wind, the sound from, where did it come from? It came from heaven. Heaven is all around. It's not somewhere out there. It's right here and right now. Dallas Willard says the damage done to our practical faith, like what are you without practical faith? What kind of Christian are you without practical faith? This is what we, like faith, practical faith is, we, we, we are saved by grace through faith. The damage done to our practical faith in Christ and in his government at hand, in this system, in his kingdom, in this realm that we are joined in, the damage done to our faith and in this kingdom at hand by confusing heaven with the space in distant or other space or even beyond space is incalculable. When we think of heaven, God's kingdom as somewhere way far away out in space, the damage it does to our everyday faith and to our interaction with this system of divine reality that we have been joined with when we are born again, the damage is incalculable. Of course, God is there too. He is in space, he's everywhere. But instead of heaven and God also being always present with us as Jesus shows them to be, we invariably take them to be located far away 
and most likely at a much later time, not here and not now. The nearness of heaven is so largely lost to the contemporary mind. Why? Why is that? Because we are so caught up with the world that we are not of, that we are unaware of the world that we are of, of this unseen realm that we are of. Wednesday, our uh, Being Transformed journal reading was Matthew chapter 16. And you'll remember it's when Peter gets real bold and he pulls Jesus aside and he's like, heaven forbid that you, you die. You cannot die. Not going to happen. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. We know that part, right? Uh, but the next words are the words that really just leapt off the page, just jumped in my spirit. It's the words of Jesus to Peter. He says, you're an offense to me. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Another translation says, thou savorest not the things of God. There's a lot of people savoring a lot of stuff. But he says, you're an offense to me. Thou savorest not the things of God. Peter was only thinking about this world, this world that we are not of. And he was doing what I'm telling you, church, I see so many evangelicals doing right now. He was measuring the future by human standard instead of measuring the future by a divine one. Thou savorest not the things of God. I'm not of this world. You're not of this world. We're of another world. And I want to know that world. I want to know what that kingdom stands for. I want to understand this system of divine reality that I have been intertwined into, that I have been welcomed into. I want to understand it, this kingdom, this world where little is much, where when we die, we are more alive than ever, where the first shall be last, where the king came to serve and not to be served. We're fools for Christ, are wise, where the weak are strong, where we lose our life and save it, where you give and you receive, where we have the ability to love our enemies, where the meek inherit the earth, where the insulted are blessed. This is the system. This is the world that we are of. I don't know why more people aren't excited that this is the world that we're of. Are you excited? This is the world that you're of. All the hopelessness, all the desperation, all the heartbreak that we see, we're not of this world. The world that we, have, that we are of is a perfect system. Romans 8, 6 says, to fill your mind with the visible is death, but to fill your mind with the spirit is life and peace. Philip's translation says, the carnal attitude sees no further than natural things but the spiritual attitude reaches out after things of the spirit. The former attitude means bluntly death. The latter means life and inward peace. We need to open our hearts, church. Jesus said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come. We need to ask for faith to interact with God in this invisible spiritual world, this real world, this real kingdom, this real system that has been designed to nourish our eternal spirits while we're aliens here in this hopeless temporal earth that is not our home. Dallas Willard says, truly there is another world as close as our breath that's safe and bathed with love. And Jesus knew it. Better yet, he invites us into it by faith in him. I am not of this world. And the third I am not statement is I am not seeking glory for myself. 
The Pharisees keep pressing Jesus. We're 50 verses into this thing and they will not let up. Like I am tired for Jesus when I read John chapter eight because they keep pressing him and pressing him and they're not like, oh Jesus, we'd love to get to know more about you. They're trying to discredit him and to disprove him. And he keeps answering the questions. And as he's answering questions, there's actually some that believe in him. It says many believe in him. So then he begins to offer discipleship and he begins to offer them freedom, but they get hung up and they say, we don't need freedom. We're already free. What are you talking about freedom? We don't need freedom. And then they start to say, uh, you know, Father Abraham, Jesus, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, and they say, and we are some of them, and he says, no, you're not. The devil is your dad, right arm, left arm. And they don't like this. They don't like that he calls them out and says, you do not look like Father Abraham. You are not sons of Abraham. You're sons of Satan. And they don't like this. So they answer him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? Samaritan? They're just like, trying to hurt his feelings at this point. They know that the Samaritans are imposters, seducers, that they were considered detestable among, like the hated among. They know he's not a Samaritan, but they say, aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? He says, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Now I want you to notice how he discredits this claim that he's demon-possessed. He's not like, ah, oh, guys, I'm not a demon, come on. If I was a demon, I'd be running around with no clothes on in the graveyards like the demoniac. Or like, you guys know I'm not a demon. You've never seen me throw myself into fire or go around fortune-telling. No, he says, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself. You wanna know what proves I'm not demon-possessed is I'm not seeking my own glory. I honor my father. David Guzik says, Jesus' desire to honor God and his personal humility disproved any charge of demonic possession. Since those who have Satan as their spiritual parent will have some of the characteristics of Satan, they will have an evident pride and self-seeking things that were and are absent in Jesus. Like father, like son, if Satan is your father, you're going to have some characteristic, characteristics of Satan. And Satan was his number one glory seeker. He was all about his own glory. That is why he rebelled and that is why he was cast out of God's heavenly family. Evident pride and self-seeking, Jesus had not. He said, I am not seeking glory for myself. I'm not after the praise of men. I am not after your applause. I am not after your affirmation. I'm not even here for my own honor. The things I'm doing is not so at the end of the day, I can pat myself on the back and say, good job, Jesus. I'm not seeking my own glory. I am only seeking the glory of my father. Jesus refused steadfastly earthly honors and power and prestige and wealth and glory. The glory of the father was his consuming passion. He was consumed with it. He was not concerned about his own glory, only the glory of the father. And do you know why he got to this place? He could be this way. He didn't get there. He was always there. But the reason he didn't have to seek his own glory is because like he said, he knew there was one who seeks it. 
There is one who seeks it. He knew that there was one who was seeking his glory for him and one who would perfectly judge if he was worthy of it or not. The judge, Jesus, the God, God as judge, he's absolutely impartial and has infinite knowledge. So he's after the glory of the Father, not the glory of these men with limited wisdom and, uh, and very partial people. Like, I don't need you giving me glory and applauding me and affirming me because you, have, you are impartial and you have limited knowledge. But there is one to whom my glory is dear one who's seeking my glory, one that my glory is perfectly safe with and who judges with absolute impartiality and infinite knowledge. All he needed was one. He was only after the glory of the Father. So how are you doing with this I am not statement? Have you come to the place like Jesus where you can say, I have a total disregard for the applause of people, the praises of men, the likes, the comments, the affirmation. Can you serve and love and give and do so without soliciting your own glory? Evident pride and self-seeking Jesus had not. What about you? Do you live your life hoping to receive glory from people or do you live your life hoping that God is being glorified in everything you do and everything you say? Are you for him and for his glory, all of this for your glory or his glory? I wanna give you, as we close, some I am seeking my own glory red flags. Red flags meaning like, whoa, caution, slow down, stop doing this, repent, turn, right? Because we don't wanna look like our father. We don't want it to look like Satan is our father, <laughs> right? These are characteristics of Satan, not characteristics of Jesus. And we're called to be transformed into the image of Jesus, right? So we need to pay attention to these things. And I, I don't want you to write them down because there's a lot, just listen. And if you wanna write it down, go back and listen to it later. I am, I am seeking my own glory, red flags. Number one, you measure your success by what you see and feel in the moment. We all do this. I was doing it last service because you guys are quiet. They were real quiet. I was like, okay, I don't think they like this message. I measure my success by what we see and feel in the moment. But really, to be honest, like I'm not seeking your glory. I'm seeking his glory. Audience of one. If he's happy, I'm happy. Number two, you are motivated or unmotivated in your work, friendships, church, by the praise or lack of praise from those around you. Number three, your decisions are often driven by what others will think. Number four, you're easily discouraged or irritated when your efforts are not appreciated by others or when others receive credit for something you have done. Number five, when others praise you, you begin to feel self-confident in your own abilities rather than relying on the Lord to lead and provide. Number six, you're more drawn to the type of work and serving opportunities that will be noticed and praised by others. Number seven, you struggle with competitiveness and envy and when someone else succeeds, it bothers you. When somebody else is given praise, you don't like that. Number eight, you measure success with a short-term view rather than an eternal one. Number nine, you spend less time in the word and prayer and abiding and more time perfecting your craft, your skill, your feed, your job, your reputation. Number 10, you find comfort in making sure others see your pain and shower you with attention because of it. Number 11, your relationships only go so deep that your struggles are not revealed. You don't want people to know what they struggle because then you can't get their glory. Number 12, your emotions and how you feel about yourself are constantly swayed 
by what you assume others think of you. Number 13, you only share a surface level of your faith out of fear of offending someone or giving someone the perception that you're weak, strange, or narrow-minded. We are letting the glory of men keep us from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will they think? They'll think I'm weird. They'll think I'm narrow-minded. They'll think I'm a crazy evangelical, not a normal one. What will they think? Now, I don't want you to be discouraged because I promise every person in this room, including myself, there's red flags on this list for me. I know there's a red flag on this list, at least one for every person in this room, something that pricks your heart, something that God has exposed. And so now you're going, okay, now what? It's been exposed. The Holy Spirit doesn't just expose things for exposing things sake. He exposes things because he's wanting you to step into a new area of freedom. And don't be like the Pharisees that are like, um, I'm pretty free. I don't think I need more freedom. No, he's, he, it was for freedom that he set you free. He wants to set you free from this. And so I asked the Holy Spirit, like, what do we need to do so that we can not have any red flags present in our heart? He says, you need to be convinced of my perfect love for you. It is perfect love that casts out all fear. He loves you with a perfect love a perfect love. He has infinite wisdom. He is not impartial. He knows everything you've ever done, will do, won't do. He loves you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. There's nothing you can do to make him more. His love for you is perfect. And when you truly understand that, when you truly get that revelation, it casts out all fear, all fear of what people will think, all fear of these people aren't gonna like me, all fear of losing popularity, all fear of, uh, of not receiving the glory of man. The key is understanding that he loves you perfectly with a perfect love. Now I wanna give you some, I am not seeking my own glory, green flags. Like, yay, good, go, this is awesome. This is what not seeking your own glory looks like. And I think it's important to show you these because we don't see this very often in the world. Like, what does it look like in 2020 to not be seeking your own glory? Number one, you find joy in Christ's name being exalted even if you receive no attention or praise in the process. Green flag. Number two, when others praise you, you feel genuinely humbled, undeserving, and overwhelmed by God's grace in your life. It's not that people can't say, hey, that was great. But when they do say it's great, that you realize like it's, it's, it's an undeserving, un overwhelmed by God's grace. The reason it was, it was good is because of God's grace in my life, the grace He's shown me. So it's not that we can't receive encouragement, but we understand that we're humbled, it's undeserved, overwhelmed by God's grace in our life. Number three, we persevere in doing good and find joy in serving Christ even when it's not glamorous and goes unappreciated. Number four, we find pleasure in exercising the unique gifts that God has given us no matter the outcome or level of success it brings. Number five, you're excited uh, for those who do well. You celebrate when somebody else does well. Number six, you do not measure success by the world's ter terms, but by the truth of God's word. Number seven, you're honest about your struggles, your failures, your sin, Recognize, recognizing that you are in the process of being transformed. We're all in the process of being transformed. Number eight, you do not feel the need to portray a certain type of life on social media and you do not need a certain amount of likes, comments, shares, friends, or followers to feel good about yourself because who cares? They're men with limited knowledge. They're women with limited knowledge and tons of impartiality or tons of partiality. Who cares? 
You have a God who loves you perfectly. Number 10, you extend, or wait, I skipped nine. You seek to know and pursue what Christ values more than climbing the ladder of success and seeking what the world values. You extend grace and forgiveness to those around you, seeking unity in Christ rather than self-protection and justice. Number 11, you do not feel threatened or intimidated by those who seem to be more spiritually mature than you, but you humbly desire to learn from others, resting in the knowledge that we are all saved by grace and in different places in our faith. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine and I am not alone. I am not of this world and I am not seeking my own glory. Jesus, let's be transformed into his image. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.